You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This is an Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program podcast in collaboration with the Education Hub at the Royal Children's Hospital. Hi, my name's Sarah Temby and I'm an Allied Health Educator in the RCH Education Hub and in the Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program. Allied Health Professionals Day is celebrated in October, so we would like to highlight this by speaking with a few of the allied health professions that work with children. There are actually more than 20 allied health professions, and today we'll be speaking with three of these. We have with us Nicola Camparelli, who is an audiologist specialising in hearing assessments for babies and children, and has been working in this area for 12 years. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. And we have Sophie King. She's a dietitian specialising in feeding difficulties and gastroenterology with eight years of dietetic experience. Thanks for having me, Sarah. And finally, we have Ashley Cruz, who's an occupational therapist specialising in neurology and neurodevelopment for the last 10 years. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Today, we'll be discussing the role of allied health in developmental assessment. Nicola, we might start with you. How many children have developmental delay and what might this look like? Yeah, so... Looking at data from the Australian Early Development Census, mm-hmm. around 20% of children in Victoria presenting to school with a number of challenges, you know, maybe they're not meeting their developmental milestones in the way that you'd normally expect. And this can be due to lo- lots of different things. So sometimes it might be like a neurodevelopmental divergence. So maybe they've got an intellectual disability or autism Maybe they've had a history of chronic illness or maybe they've got a physical disability or even developmental delay can be caused by things like, you know, family violence or or trauma in their background. And because there are so many different aspects of development that can be affected by these things, it just means that it's not a one size fits all model when we approach these families and when we're looking at sort of assessing and organising intervention. Mm. And so with so much variability in the cause and presentation of developmental delay, I can imagine that broaching assessment might seem quite daunting for both clinicians and the families. Is there a recommended starting point? Yeah, so the first contact for these families is usually their GP or their paediatrician and the families would make an appointment with the paediatrician and have a chat about their concerns um, with the child and identify maybe what areas of the child's development need to be investigated. And then the GP or the paediatrician would arrange referrals so to other specialists like allied health professionals like me to you know look into a bit more how to support the family and implement various interventions. And a lot of the time... As families work through, you know, this process of investigations and seeing different specialists, their their areas of concern might change. So they might develop new concerns or they might change the way that they're thinking about their child's developmental trajectory. So it's really important that people like me are able to support families and help them understand what the next step is and where to go next. And one of the most common places to start for these families is to do a hearing test for their child. And and that's where I come in. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. And so why is a hearing test often the starting point for a developmental assessment? Well, hearing loss in childhood, it's a really common cause of delayed development because it can look like lots of different things. It can sort of manifest in lots of different ways. So a childhood hearing loss might affect speech development. It can affect the child's behaviour. It can even affect their, you know, their social development and how they're able to interact with other people and make friends and things like that. So even though a lot of the time for these families hearing is actually not the main thing that the families are concerned about, it's, it's still really important to do a hearing test 
because first of all, it's good to identify hearing loss early, but also it can be really helpful to just rule hearing loss out as a cause for the child's delayed development to help the family kind of progress further in their pathway. Absolutely. And how do you actually assess the hearing of a child? Well, that depends a lot on the individual child, particularly where they're at with their development. So it's really important as an audiologist to, and for any allied health clinician really, to tailor the assessment to the child's developmental level rather than their chronological age. So sometimes we might make the hearing test into a, into a game so we can use the child's behaviour to measure their hearing. So we play a listening game or we might teach the child to you know turn their head towards a sound. Other times, whether it's because of the child's age or their delayed development, we can't always use their behaviour to measure their hearing. So in those cases, we do what are known as objective hearing tests. So we might use the response from the inner ear or the hearing part of the brain to measure the child's hearing. And then after that hearing test, what are the possible outcomes? Obviously depends on the results of the test. So if a child is diagnosed with a hearing loss, we would refer them to an ear, nose and throat specialist to you know, investigate the hearing loss further and, and maybe look at some ways of helping manage the hearing loss or improving the hearing. If the hearing loss is permanent, we would also refer the child to a service called Hearing Australia. So they're a service that look after children with hearing loss that's permanent and they fit hearing aids and they can facilitate things like early intervention, particular to you know children who, who have impaired hearing. On the other hand, if the hearing is normal, um, so if we can you know do the assessment and say, okay, hearing loss is not the cause for your child's delayed development, then what we do is kind of think about, all right, what's the next step? So we'd encourage the family to link back in with their referring clinician to have a chat about the results. And we might also sort of help guide the family to what might be the next allied health professional they see. So a speech pathologist or a, um, an occupational therapist. And it's important to sort of take into account the family's concerns, but also what I might identify as maybe some potential things that need to be looked into. So for example, I saw a, a little three-year-old who came in for a hearing test and the hearing was normal, which was great. But I noticed during the assessment that the parents were sort of spoon feeding their three-year-old with some pureed food, which which I know is not really developmentally appropriate for a three-year-old, but, you know, it didn't seem like the family was aware of this. So we took some time to sort of have a bit of a chat about that and I suggested that the family might think about consulting a dietitian, you know, which is another allied health professional. Yeah, so we can sort of link in in that way. Mm, That's a great example of the need to be aware of developmental milestones and knowing when something isn't typical and then who you should refer on to. So great example. So Sophie, as a dietitian, can you give us a little more insight into this child and their feeding issue? Mm. So at three years of age, we would usually expect a child to be able to cope with chewing um, most of the food given at the family mealtime, as opposed to still needing those pureed food or pureed texture. In addition, we would expect the child to be able to feed themselves with a spoon uh, and not require that feeding support. So in this example, it would certainly warrant some further feeding assessment. Mm. We would also probably assess their specific feeding skills to determine where the child is up to from a developmental milestones perspective. And if they're not meeting these, then sort of start to ask those questions why and as dietitians we see a spectrum of feeding difficulties which can include sort of you know the 
fussy, picky eating. And then in addition, we might see feeding or behaviours at mealtime, such as sort of food neophobia, where the child has a genuine fear of, of trying new foods, limited appetites and prolonged or, or stressful mealtime. So to some extent, these behaviours are, are seen in the sort of that toddler age group. Uh, and are considered a normal part of that feeding development, but are usually transient. And then when we assess a child to have a number of these behaviours or have displayed these behaviours for a prolonged period, then we would consider this a bit more of a, a complex feeding dynamic and might prompt us to assess the child's you know, overall development. Interestingly, we know there's a, a prevalence of up to sort of 90% of children with developmental delay having feeding difficulties. Oh, right. I didn't know that stat. Amazing. And so what would you assess for a child with those query feeding difficulties? Yeah. So as a dietitian, we're not just looking at the food quality or, or what's presented um, and how healthy the meal is, etc. But we're looking at things like texture and variety. For example, is the child only consuming those, those puree or mash textured foods? Is the child's intake, you know, limited to a certain number of foods? And are they sort of certain flavours or texture preferences from the child? Mealtime setup is important as well. So where and how does the child sit for the meal and with who? Is the child self-feeding or are they having support from parents? And how are they self-feeding? Is there a bottle or is there a cup for drinking, etc.? Mealtime interactions are also important. So what's the child's response to mealtime? Is it enjoyable? Is it stressful? Is there a role modelling happening from parents or with siblings? And also the parents' perceptions of the child's feeding behaviour. So it's important to gauge I guess, the parents' expectations of the child's problematic behaviour as in any sort of discrepancies between what we perceive as health professionals of the feeding difficulty uh, and those of the parents. It's important to gauge if there's a discrepancy there. And then lastly, growth. So looking at their trajectory over the years and has this child's growth been impacted because of their feeding difficulty. Mm, And are there any other allied health that would be involved with treating a child with feeding difficulties? Yeah, so I think um, feeding difficulties in children with developmental delay, it's sort of only one piece of the puzzle. And it's important to gauge the child's overall development. So, you know, social aspects, motor development, behaviour, communication, etc. And identify other areas of concern and, and to allow us to refer to those relevant allied health disciplines. So, for example, if a parent describes difficulties relating to a child's swallow or, or emotional difficulties, or if the child is experiencing any sort of gagging, coughing, spluttering with food or drink, we would, you know, would prompt us to get speech pathology involved and sort of vice versa if we notice a parent sitting their child on their lap and spoon feeding over a, a certain age for example we might prompt us to get us an occupational therapist involved too. Yeah okay and so Ashley as an occupational therapist what would your involvement be with a child who has a developmental delay? Good question. As our name suggests, occupational therapists or OTs are interested in occupations which are the everyday activities that children do. Children's occupations include self-care activities like dressing, bathing, toileting and eating, as well as play, which we know is a really important occupation for young children. As OTs, we really aim to support um, children's participation as well as their development of independence in these activities. We know that children might experience difficulties with these activities for a really wide range of reasons and OTs have particular expertise in understanding and assessing what factors might be contributing to difficulties with their participation in these tasks. In the example of a child with feeding difficulties, an OT assessment might include assessment of their positioning during mealtimes, so what are they sitting in and are they sitting in a chair with enough support, their ability to use cutlery or drink from a cup, 
their ability to tolerate different textures, tastes and smells and how their sensory preferences might be impacting on this, their cognitive or their thinking skills, as well as their social emotional development and whether this is impacting their understanding and participation in mealtimes. And we'd also consider the impact of the child's environment. So, for example, are there distractions, lights, noise that are impacting participation at those times? Following an assessment, an OT will continue to work really closely with the family as well as the child and the rest of their team to identify um, and implement strategies that best support their participation as well as the development of skills required to achieve their goals. Great. Thanks, Ashley. I definitely have a better understanding of an OT's role. So with developmental delay, I'm sure that there is a great deal of variability in how simple or complex developmental delay can be. And it seems like the initial conversation with a physician might only cover the tip of the iceberg. So what would you recommend for assessment and treatment to ensure that all possibilities are explored? The assessment doesn't stop at the initial conversation. It continues at all interactions with health and educational professionals and is an ongoing process over time. We know that parents know their child best and they often have a really good understanding of their child's needs. So it's important that they feel confident to share their thoughts or concerns throughout the process. It's also really important that clinicians working in paediatrics have a sound understanding of childhood development in order to identify concerns and make referrals to other professionals in a timely manner. Mm. Sophie gave a really nice example earlier of indicators for referral to speech pathology and some other examples might include referral to physiotherapy if concerns regarding gross motor skills such as sitting, crawling or walking are identified or referral to psychology might be considered if there's concerns with symptoms of anxiety, emotional regulation difficulties or significant behaviour concerns. And where intervention is is required, some families will be able to access a one-stop shop service for these therapies and supports all under the one roof. And others might need that assistance in building their team of supports through accessing different services in primary care or potentially through the the National Disability Insurance Scheme or, or the NDIS if they're an eligible participant. There might be some you know trial and error to work out which services, therapies for that child's needs are best. So there's no cookie cutter approach and it should be very much individualised to that child. We know that there can often be multiple clinicians involved to make up that child's support team. So I think regular communication and ensuring everyone is on that same page is, is also key to work towards sort of the unified goal whilst having the, the child at the centre of that. I think it's also important to appreciate that priorities for the child and the family may change over different time points and this needs to be reflected in in how their support network is working for them and supporting them. Support needs to be responsive to not only the child's needs but also the family's needs as a whole. Fantastic and what would be your three key take-home messages? Yeah I think first and foremost the child should be at the the centre of the assessment and the intervention. Each child should be assessed as an individual. Like I said there's no one size fits all approach and their therapy should be very much tailored to their needs and developmental capacity as well. As Ashley mentioned earlier that I think secondly the parents need to be considered partners at every step of the child's journey because we do consider them to be experts in their own child's development as well as us. They know them best and so it's fundamental that they're included in all aspects of therapy. I think finally it takes a village to raise a child and that might include families as well as a GP, paediatrician, therapists, a school, community. So I think ensuring that the village is made up of what that young person needs and this often includes an interprofessional team of healthcare professionals. So identifying areas of concern early and prompting referrals to relevant experts is really fundamental in managing children with developmental delay or concerns. 
Great. Well, thank you so much, Nicola, Sophie and Ashley for talking today about developmental delay, in particular the role of allied health professionals, such as an audiologist, a dietitian, and an occupational therapist. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.